I'm Donovan Kane. Welcome back to the podcast and this full-length audiobook presentation of Red Sin, book number one of the Sin series, written by New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal best-selling author Aletha Romig, and read to you by Samantha Prescott and Stephen Dexter. And now, Episode 9 of Red Sin. Chapter 9. Julia. Somehow, during my drive along the White Ribbon, I'd gotten off the main road. At least my GPS had kept me on the roads. The road I followed took me west of Ashland. That was how I ended up on the outskirts of Van's property. If I would have continued, instead of crashing into a snowbank, I would have reached Lake Superior. Now, after accepting Van's offer of exploring the job opportunity, I was following his large black truck northwest from Ashland to the west side of Shawamigan Bay. The country and land near the shores of the Great Lake were stunning, even with their white covering. Tall trees of all varieties reached up to the blue sky. Though the snow had stopped, the massive accumulation of lake effect snow now appeared as tall white walls on the sides of plowed roads, ones that were barely wide enough for two-way traffic. Following in Van's truck's tracks, I scolded myself for not accepting his offer of a ride to his house. If it weren't for the tracks from his truck, barreling through the snow that had blown back onto the roads, I was skeptical as to whether the car I rented would be able to proceed. Once we'd passed through Washburn, a quaint little city even smaller than Ashland, we were back onto narrow roads in wilderness. If I chose to stay in this area, for the job or any other offer, it would take me some time to get used to the difference between here and the city of Chicago. Gone were the big buildings and traffic jams. The road I was following wound through the tall trees until we arrived at a lane with an open gate leading to what I assumed was Donovan Sherman's home. Following his truck, I drove up a winding, inclined lane. My mouth opened as I stared through the windshield, taking in the huge structure. By its sheer size alone, I wondered if at one point this had been a hotel or bed and breakfast. At the same time, it appeared modern with a lot of windows and a combination stone and wood-sided exterior. With the rental car parked on the cleared, wide driveway, I stepped from the car and lifted my face to the massive structure. Pulling my down jacket around me, I stuffed my hands into the pockets to shield myself from the cold. I turned slowly all the way around, taking in the way the structure surrounded three sides of the driveway. The closing of Van's truck door echoed from the garages on my left. I turned, noticing how different he appeared from the night I met him. His mountain man clothing was replaced with his custom-fitted suit and covered by a double-breasted wool coat. Instead of boots, he wore leather loafers that clipped upon the concrete as he walked toward me from one of the double garages, the one where he'd just parked his truck. His orange hat was nowhere to be seen, and his gelled, dark mane blew in the breeze. I took in the other two double garage doors. Both sides of the structure were two stories. The center was three. Turning, it appeared as if the middle structure was the main house with another wing to the right and one to the left. 
This is a lot of house for one man. I suppose it is. Van placed his hand in the small of my back. Come with me and let me show you around, said the spider to the fly. I mumbled as the pressure of his too familiar touch brought thoughts of another part of our agreement to mind. Without replying, Van led me up the front stone porch to the large entry. The door before us was easily five feet taller than Van. It was odd to see him appear dwarfed. That hadn't happened in the cabin or Mr. Field's office. He turned the large knob and pushed the door inward. We entered a foyer with a high ceiling and a uniquely beautiful lighting fixture above. To one side was an elegant built-in hall tree. It wasn't the kind that was freestanding, but rather integrated ornate woodwork, easily six feet wide with a bench, storage areas, and hooks. There was a louvered door to the right. Van opened it, offering to take my coat and hang it in the front closet. As he hung my outer coat in his, I peered at what was awaiting me beyond this enclosed entry. My curiosity peaked. The house was blockaded by an exquisite set of tall French doors, the interior distorted by the leaded glass panels. Van's hand was again on my lower back as he opened the French doors. I wasn't unaccustomed to the finer things in life. The home where I was raised in Lincoln Park had been in our family for two generations. My mother's parents, the son of her grandfather who founded Wade Pharmaceutical, purchased the home for nearly half a million. Fifty years later, it was easily worth 10 million. The six bedroom limestone structure was every bit as grand as it had been when it first came to our family. However, as Van opened the front door and we stepped inside, I was impressed with the understated elegance I saw before me. The floor plan, as well as the furnishings, was the perfect combination of opulent and rustic. The tiled entry within gave way to glistening wood floors, open rounded archways to both sides, and a large room beyond with pillars. The staircase curved upward to the second story landing and beyond to a third story. Both levels and the staircase had railings and a banister with a shiny wood handrail and wrought iron railing spindles. As you can see, he said, there's plenty of space. Making my way beyond the entry, I saw the main level was open and spacious. I was drawn into the large living room and over to the wall of windows peering out over the bay. The water was frosted by snow, covering the ice under the tranquil sky. This view is lovely. It's a bit different from Chicago's skyline. I nodded, still mesmerized by the pristine snow covering. I appreciate the isolation, Van said. Turning one way and the next, I searched for other homes. How much land do you have? Not as much as I'd like. A smile tugged at my lips. Earlier, you said you want more power. Now you want more land? Will you ever have enough? He inhaled as he shrugged. I suppose some see it as greed, but that's not how I see it. His eyes moved from me to the beautiful scene beyond the windows. I'm also not unsatisfied. 
I believe that the quest for more and better is because there is always something more, something newer, a fresh challenge. I think that living a life without the need for the next step would be uninspired. What would be the point of waking without a goal for each day? Some people set satisfaction as their end goal. Once they achieve it, they enjoy it. Van shook his head as he turned to me. It's the pursuit I enjoy. So if I had agreed to marry you, I'd no longer be enjoyable? You'd want to move on to another? No, Julia, that isn't what I said. You see, having you agree to marry me would be the first step in our relationship. I would pursue you to have more, better, the unknown, and even the unobtainable. He started to reach for my cheeks. Before he did, Van pulled his hands back and straightened his lips. Let me show you around more. I reached for his hand. The warmth radiated from him to me. What were you going to say? He squeezed my hand and let our connection sever. It's irrelevant. Tell me anyway. The ends of Van's lips curled. One day, Miss McGrath. Currently, you agreed to an employer-employee relationship. It would be highly inappropriate for me to tell you what I was thinking while under those titles. My grin blossomed on my face. Perhaps you should share your human resource officer's name with me. I may need to make a complaint. If you take this position, you won't be employed by Sherman and Madison Corporation or any of its subsidiaries. I'm afraid the agreement will be strictly between you and me. If I have a complaint, bring it to me he said. And if you are unsatisfied with my work? The golden flecks in his green eyes became more apparent. If it's your inexperience you're concerned about, I don't find that a problem. While it was surprising, I've given it some thought, and I find myself attracted to it. Why did I tell him I was a virgin? It was because I thought I'd never see him again. I feigned the professionalism I'd thought we were discussing. However, as warmth crept from my chest, up my neck, and to my cheeks, I doubted I was pulling off the facade. I wasn't talking about that. Van's eyes opened wider. Your resume states you're unpublished, and the only writing you've completed was for your minor at Northwestern. Do you have more experience in writing memoirs than you mentioned? My eyes blinked. No, yes, you're right. Why do I think he is talking about sex? Maybe it was my mind that kept going there. I don't have a lot of experience in writing memoirs. I understand if that makes me unqualified. I've read my share of memoirs. Some are formulistic and dry. Your lack of experience interests me, because I've found that the less experienced individual relies more upon their passion. It's that inner drive that pushes them forward. Mistakes may or may not be made, but those are usually in the mechanics, easily fixable. Over time, that passion tends to lessen. The finished products become more cookie cutter. Insert information here and there. That isn't what I want for this project. I'm attracted to your passion, Julia. I sucked in a breath, still unsure about the blurred line between the memoir and sex. Van went on. You accepted my offer, 
And for the record, I don't anticipate being unhappy with your performance. Writing performance, I clarified. He smirked. Yes, that is what we're discussing, right? Right. If I'm unsatisfied in any way, or you are, together we'll work it out. Simple mechanics. As a point of interest, your manuscript will not only need to be approved by me, but it will also need to go through a vetting process with my legal team. Why? It's nothing about your writing, it's the content. I've been involved in many ventures that, if mentioned in our conversations, should not be part of the final manuscript. If those matters are mentioned, the legal team will redact them from your work. I wasn't certain how to respond. Instead, I turned back to the large living room we'd traversed on our way to the windows. While the furnishings were stunning, it was the grand piano that first caught my eye. Walking toward it, I gently ran my fingers over the ivory keys, not applying enough pressure to sound even one note. When I looked up, Van was looking at me with an unreadable expression. Do you play? I asked. I used to. Do you? A bashful smile came to my lips. It's been a while. I was never that good. I'm not used to having others around. But if playing this piano will help you think, and thinking will change your answer to my proposal, then by all means, you're welcome to play. I have it tuned yearly. He leaned down as his large fingers splayed over the keys, rounding to the perfect position, and began to play. The room filled with a sad melody. Music rang out as, within the piano, small hammers struck their corresponding strings, sending the tune reverberating through the open room. I was enthralled by the way Van's hands moved, effortlessly flying over the keys. The tune only lasted a few seconds. He'd only played a few bars, and still, I recognized the complicated piece. Beethoven, I said, my mouth still opened with awe. You have a good ear, Moonlight Sonata. That was amazing. Why did you say you no longer play? The answer to that question very well could be an example of what is not to be exposed in my memoir. Van reached for the cover and pulled it down over the keys. You're welcome to play this piano whenever you want. My ability is nothing compared to yours. Maybe listening to you play will help me think. I'll give you the Wi-Fi information. Feel free to stream any music you desire. Mentally, I was making a list of the things I wanted to learn about Donovan Sherman. That list was growing by the second. Let me show you to your suite. As we began walking toward the front staircase, Van said, I wasn't planning on the job applicant living in my home. I never intended to have contact with the writer. I have notes and files. It was my plan to share the information and then allow the writer to pen the compilation. What? The ad said to live on site. When deciding to begin this endeavor, I'd anticipated on site to mean on my property. You asked how much land I have. It's a little over 70 acres. He took a deep breath. You, Julia McGrath, have other attributes besides the writing of the memoir. 
In a rather selfish decision, I changed my plans, deciding I wanted you closer. However, in all fairness, if you have any misgivings about living here with me, there's a guest house on my property not far away. And then, also, he grinned. Well, you remember the cabin. My cheeks rose. Yes, I remember the cabin. I also remember that it doesn't have electricity. That would make charging my laptop difficult. I'll show you your suite. When I had this house refurbished, I did so with the idea that each suite was self-contained with a sitting room, bedroom, and ensuite bathroom. He pointed to the ceiling at least 15 feet above. Mine is upstairs closest to the garages. I'll show you to the one at the farthest end of the south wing. Next to mine, it has the best view of the bay. Shall I look for a message in Van's desire to have me farther away? Then again, is the suite far when the other option is a guest house? The end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Red Sin, book number one of the Sin series. Written by New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal best-selling author Aletha Romig. And read to you by Samantha Prescott and Stephen Dexter. You can find out more about Aletha Romig and her books at aletharomig.com. Find out more about the show at steamystoriesforwomen.com.